When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. And at that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Areopagite. That one makes a few people anxious when they're signed up to be the uh, lector for the day. Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with him. This thing that you are doing on this uh, little bit gloomy Mother's Day, uh, whether you're joining us online or you were able to make it over here in person uh, for worship this morning to enter into this time of worship, is uh, increasingly countercultural. You know, it certainly was in the beginning, uh, and the moment we find ourselves in. Uh, gathering together, being actively engaged in a local worshiping community is increasingly counter-cultural. It is an ancient practice, to be sure. The gathering, the scripture reading, the hymn singing, the prayers, the proclamation, the, the rhythms of our worship uh, have been part of communities of faith throughout the ages. But it has fallen out of practice more than a little bit, especially in the Western world. Early in my ministry, some 30 years ago, I, I set about collecting pictures of churches that had become something else because they ceased to be worshiping communities. And uh, there were quite a few of them, and I was sort of struck by it. And it, it was an indication of maybe a kind of a trend. And there was, I had a little folder where I kept pictures of these as I'd encounter them. Um, there was Dane Furniture, that was a church in uh, inner city Philadelphia that was now this furniture place. They're actually right down the block from uh, Atonement Lutheran Church where I served. There was an apartment building that had been uh, for a hundred plus years a Methodist congregation, now converted to apartment buildings. So I used to collect these pictures, but I, you, you, I mean... Today, if you just Google that, I don't know what you'd put in there, but Google, you know, churches converted to uh, something else, that there are thou literally thousands of them out there. They are everything from pubs to bookstores uh, to condos and apartments and so on and so forth. So, you know, whatever your status is here this morning, whether you are a first-time visitor or you are a charter member, you made the effort to join us for worship. And I'm going to guess that most of you are here on your own accord. Uh, you weren't forced or coerced or, or guilted into coming. You're here because your faith is a source of comfort, of hope, in your life, or because you're looking to have that kind of faith. Uh, the reading assigned for today, we didn't read it, but the, one of the other readings of the lectionary for the days from 1 Peter, uh, where it says, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who demands from you an account of the hope that is in you. Always be ready to make a defense for anyone who demands from you an account of the hope that is in you. If your faith does provide you with a sense of 
joy or gratitude or hope, it is increasingly probable in this culture that you may be called upon to defend that hope to somebody you know or to a world that may scoff. When you share what this faith means to you in a way that welcomes, includes, inspires, comforts someone you know, it may be life-giving for them. You may be one of their only chances to encounter the living word, the gospel, the good news. We've had so many funerals here at Prince of Peace in this first quarter of the new year. I think we're to a dozen now. And in most all of the cases, it has been for people who we know to have been actively engaged with the community of faith and their life. And so it is such a privilege to, to lead those services because we're able to say uh, this good news, this hope of this resurrection, this loving, claiming, forgiving, welcoming God, this defeat of death to new life, this person whom we lay to rest on this day and commit to our Lord, lived and moved and had her being in the knowledge of this good news, and for that we can, we can give thanks. Well, that's not always true. I couldn't count the number of funerals I've done for people throughout the years that I had no idea whether their life included a connection to this good news, this gospel faith, whether it was a comfort, a source of joy, of inspiration to them. In the reading from Acts during these Sundays following Easter, the first reading in the lectionary each week is taken from the book of Acts. Luke and Acts thought to have been written by the same author. So Acts giving us an account of the growth of the early church. And the reading assigned for last week, Pastor Natalia went a, a, a different direction in her uh, sermon, so she, we didn't really hear from this particular passage. But uh, in that reading, um, a young follower of Jesus named Stephen was uh, giving a powerful defense for the hope that was in him, right? He was out there preaching and proclaiming in public the gospel of Christ. And, you know, that gospel is always countercultural. The gospel is always a threat to the empire. And it, it, it involves people changing their minds and their hearts and their behaviors. And, 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 and though, though Stephen's proclamation was about this grace and this good news, it angered the crowd to such an extent that they surrounded him and, and they stoned him to death. They, they took turns throwing rocks at him until they put him to death. And one stood there watching their coats for them. This was his job. He didn't throw a rock. Maybe he didn't have a very good arm. But he, he said, I'm, I'm not good at throwing, but I'll watch your coats for you because you don't want to take your coat off, you know, when you're about such business. And that one was Saul. We now know him as St. Paul. He stood and watched their coats and nodded his approval at the, uh, at the treachery that was going on in front of him. Um, this week, Paul, in the 
reading Grace just read for us, is out there proclaiming the gospel of Christ, the same good news that he tried to snuff out by persecuting Christians and nodding his approval as Stephen was put to death. He is establishing local churches, local communities of faith like this one. Uh, He's developing leaders, he's preaching the gospel, he's teaching, and they're singing and they're praying and they're giving. Athens is where Paul is. It's a sophisticated cultural center where the best minds of the Mediterranean world gathered and pursued that legendary Athenian curiosity about things, you know, the home of Pericles and Plato. And it was an international seacoast town, so you could find there in the marketplaces anything you might be looking for, artists and craftspeople and sellers of exotic goods and elaborate statues everywhere you looked of every god that anybody ever dreamed up. Acts says, Paul was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He just couldn't handle it. So many altars and statues to these unnamed gods, but Paul wasn't in Athens as a tourist. He was there to reach out with the gospel to anyone who would listen. And while he might have been less than culturally sensitive to be having these thoughts about how bugged he was by the way these people expressed their spirituality, Paul was there to proclaim the hope that was in him that converted him from a guy condoning and actually advocating violence against those who would follow Jesus to a person out there proclaiming that very good news himself. So he started preaching in the local synagogues, and he even got up enough nerve to set up shop in the marketplace where anybody who, everybody who's anybody is gathering to argue and talk about politics and religion. And even the town's university crowd hung out down there in the marketplaces, and they were listening to Paul holding forth, and they weren't sure what to make of him. And they said, what does this babbler want to say? Acts tells us. What does this babbler want to say? He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. Foreign divinities. Boy, I had to... I was going over this again this morning in my office, and I had a meeting with a couple of council leaders, and, uh, and I, I had to wrestle myself away from that. That phrase kind of grabbed me, foreign divinities. I thought a whole message could be crafted after just that thought. I mean, I have my God, you have yours. Uh, so yours may be, well be a bit foreign to me. We have red state Christianity versus blue state. This can be very different expressions. You know, while Pastor Natalia is uh, about to uh, go on sabbatical for part of the summer, we are so blessed uh, to have pastor and author Angela Danker to be with us to fill in uh, throughout the summer. And you're going to want to make sure uh, to be here. She is a real gifted author, gifted uh, pastor. And she wrote a book called Red State Christians, uh, 
She was a, a sports reporter. She's got a fascinating history. She's just a really a lovely and, and, and creative and engaging person. We're just so blessed that she's going to be among us for a while. In her book uh, entitled Red State Christians, she, she digs deeply into these dynamics of these different expressions of the Christian faith. Well, I just think of Paul there in Athens, uh, there preaching and proclaiming, and I, I, and I sometimes wonder how many times he thought to himself, because Paul thought, it, you know, Paul says that I'm really that he's not an eloquent preacher. He, he doesn't make the claim to that. In fact, he uses that as kind of an excuse, but that being what it is, I wonder there in that that advanced, uh, sophisticated culture where he's proclaiming in public among all of these learned folks, how many times it might have crossed Paul's mind, man, could I have used Stephen out here. Young Stephen was a preacher. Yeah, he was, he was a real a proclaimer of the good news, and uh, Luke tells us that when Stephen proclaimed his arguments, this is the way Luke phrases it, his arguments could not be overcome. Even so, Paul's invited to come down to the Areopagus and to give them some of his best stuff. And it's not all that surprising that that sophisticated town where curiosity and any new idea wins the day that people showed up. Luke tells us now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. They always wanted to move on to the next new thing. And I wonder how much we might resonate with that in our own culture. The ancient things, the ancient practices, now they're also countercultural today. The churches, so many of them are becoming apartment buildings and Danish furniture stores and pubs. Well, what we have next is an account of what Paul said to them. It's a very well-constructed piece of classic rhetoric. And if you think about it, Paul comes from a defeated and occupied foreign territory. You know, the Romans have control of Israel, of the Holy Land, of the temple. Everybody's paying taxes uh, to Rome. So that Paul doesn't come with kind of power and clout from, uh, from an important uh, uh, place. Uh, but there he is to give an account of the hope that was in him to these sophisticated and skeptical Athenians. Athenians, Paul says, I see how extremely spiritual or religious you all are in every way. And he mentions the vast array of statues and idols that he notices throughout the city. And it was a little like saying, you know, you people have never met a God, apparently, that you couldn't worship or created one. It's a bit of a backhanded compliment. He goes on, For as I went through the city, Paul says, and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore, Paul goes on, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, 
he who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands. He is not far from each one of us. Notice here that Paul is using inclusive language. He's not saying, you know, from the, from the Jews or the Israelites or my people. He's, he's, we're all in this together. He's not far from each one of us, Paul on, goes on to say. For in him we live and move and have our being. It's one of my favorite phrasing in all of the scriptures. I, I use it a lot. It just comes up because I, somewhere in my brain it seated itself. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we, too, are his offspring. Paul's given those Athenians something to think about. And he bothered to learn about their worship and their shrines and their poets. And you can almost see them leaning in to listen. So Paul tells them that God in Christ has defeated death. All these funerals you've been attending, God has defeated death. And that, says Luke, is is when some of them in the crowd scoffed. Defeated death. They scoffed. It's one of the most popular ways to deflect the challenge of the gospel. It's awful interesting, and we really ought to discuss this matter again sometime. Acts continues, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them scoffed, and others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers and believed. Among them was Dionysius, the Areopagite, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, I've pointed out a bunch of times that it's pretty tough to actually get your name in the Scriptures, to get your your name in there so that everybody forever will know it. There are all kinds of famous biblical characters that we all have rattling around in our heads and our hearts for whom we do not have a name. The rich young ruler, the prodigal son, what was was his name? Uh, The woman at the well who had a transformative encounter with Christ the man born blind, the good Samaritan, so many others. But here, in this account of Paul's visit in Athens where he proclaimed the good news, gave an account for the hope that was in him, a couple of folks who were given that same hope were also given the rare honor of having their actual names written into the Holy Scriptures. And unlikely and hard to pronounce names they are. They are, in fact, foreign names. Not to mention they are women. Foreign names like Dionysius and a woman named Damaris. These are not Jewish names. In a way, their response, Dionysius and Damaris and the others, was the beginning of hope 
that you and I share even on this Mother's Day. We read about Paul's determination to share the good news no matter what it costs him and with anyone who will listen. He will be laughed at, he will be scoffed at, he will be beaten, he will be jailed, but Paul will not be silenced. He will proclaim the good news of the death and resurrection of Christ and help establish the young church communities of faith like this one. And because of that, the good news has reached you and me again on this day. And we gather in this holy space, which has not become an apartment or a bookstore or a pub. And that brings me to what I came to say this morning. This is why you are here today, whether joining us in person are you with us from home? Your name, your actual name, is also written into the book of life, into the Holy Scriptures, living and active, into the Word of God, along with all the others. You are included. Paul says in Galatians, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, Clothe yourselves with Christ. Jesus says, I will not leave you orphaned. That's from the gospel assigned to this Mother's Day. I will not leave you orphaned. No orphans, only children of God, only siblings in Christ including you and me, Dionysius and Damaris. Let's take this good news out there. The world needs to hear it, and someone probably needs to hear it from you. Amen.